0: Hey listeners, are you enjoying our podcasts and coaching advice? Do you feel like some guidance and accountability could help you stay motivated and focused during these uncertain pandemic times? We love connecting with our listeners and collaborating to make training work for your goals, your life, your personality. As a thank you for listening to our podcast, we want to offer any new clients $20 off the first month of coaching, which is normally $150. Email us at Julie and Lisa at com to set up a time to connect over the phone to learn more and be sure to mention this special offer as one of our loyal listeners. Our runners are often asking us how they can optimize their recovery. And aside from getting more sleep, One of our number one tips is compression socks. Compression socks can help increase blood flow from your legs to your heart and raise your blood oxygen levels. They also minimize leg pain and cramping and reduce swelling. So they're great for after that long run or hard workout. Our favorites are Lily Trotters compression socks. They are the strongest compression that you can get without a doctor's prescription. And they are beautiful and fun to wear with your running gear. We love their battle axe collection, which recognizes powerful, unstoppable women warriors, but the socks can be worn by men or by women. So we're happy to have them as a sponsor and they are offering our podcast listeners 20% off with the code RFF20 on the website, Lily Trotters, that's L-I-L-Y-T-R-O-T-T-E-R-S.com. We just wanted to take a quick break to give a shout out to our newest sponsor, Ufo's. If you're a long time listener, you know that Ufo's shoes are an integral part of our recovery, and we've been wearing their new boots all winter long. Ufo's are the original recovery footwear brand, helping to reduce load and stress so your body can rebuild throughout the day. Often the aches and pains we're feeling in our feet, ankles, knees, and even our hips can be due to not wearing supportive shoes. We wear our supportive running shoes when we're running, but what do we wear when we're not running? Ufos reduce shock impact on the body by 37%, making it easier for your body to recover faster. Stay tuned to our podcast and social media channels this month for a chance to win a pair of Ufos, and check them out now on their website at ufos, O-O-F-O-S dot com. One of the pieces of running gear that we've both used for 15 years is our spy belt. It's one of our favorite pieces of running gear. Spy belt stands for small personal items. And we both started using it many years ago to carry our nutrition during races. It's great, no bounce, no chafing, and a great way to carry nutrition. But since then, I'll be honest, I use mine as my purse. I use it for my phone, my keys, wallet, and strap it on and don't have to worry about carrying a purse. So it's one of our favorite running items and we are so excited to have Spybelt Belt as one of our sponsors and they are offering our listeners 15% off through May 15th. You can order online at spybelt.com and enter the code RUNFARTHERFASTER15, all one word, lowercase letters. Give it a try. We think that you'll love the Spy Belt for whatever you have to carry when you need your hands free. Hey Julie. Hey Lisa, how are you? I am actually great. Thank you. How are you? I'm good. Happy belated birthday. How was your birthday yesterday? It was actually, I have to say, and I don't know if this a surprising or I don't know, maybe after last year's pandemic birthday, which actually was a good birthday too. I would classify it as my best birthday ever. Um, Wow. It was was just, you know, it was a day I took to myself. Usually my birthday is just another day and it just, you know, it's great. And I get to be with friends and family and But yesterday um, I went for a run with um, my friend who I run with, Paul, in the morning, and we had a great run. And then I came back and Melissa picked me up, my good friend from my child, high school, Melissa picked me up and we went to Harper's Ferry, West Virginia, which is not as far as I've lived here my whole life and I've never been to Harper's Ferry. And we hiked. We spent the day hiking. It was beautiful. First of all, my my dream weather, which is like, you know, 80s and sunny. So finally, nice weather, warm weather. And we hiked and we spent time together. And we just don't get to do that now is really spend time with people. And Um, really like get to talk. And um, I really got to do that yesterday. It was so nice. And then we came back and um, the kids and I had dinner with my parents. Um, They brought dinner over and we had dinner and cake. And I just felt like I got to spend the day um, with all the people that are really important to me and hearing from people that are, you know, I just love that. I heard from my you know, my best friends from high school and my really good friends from law school and my my neighbors and my friends and you dropped off such a sweet gift, literally sweet. It was, Julie knows knows me so well. I was just having supper right now before we got on the podcast, but a big bag of sweet goodies that had a theme to it. It was like, um kind of like race prep. It was like a race prep bag. It was, and I have to tell you, your card that you gave me, it was this beautiful card that had like sushi, like beaded sushi on the front, like a 3d sushi. My kids were Kira asked if she could have the card when I was done displaying it. So, um, a sushi (laughs) card and then Fisher's popcorn and candy, like all this great stuff. So it was like a race prep bag. Um, that was so, so nice. And, um, uh, yeah, so just, you know, to hear from everybody and get to talk to, I love getting to connect with people in all different parts of my life. Like, you know, from people that I've known for many, many years and people that have become Um, I've become really close to and are special to me from much more recent so it I honestly let today feeling like wow I really I took the day to to really um kind of step back and uh just enjoy it and I I don't usually do that usually it's just a a normal other day that maybe I get some cake at the end of the day and you know recognize my birthday but I really spent it focusing on the things that were important to me and that was um that was awesome so feeling like 47 is going to be a good year it absolutely is I'm so glad you did that Lisa I think
1: um listening to what you shared, I feel like it's probably going to be a theme for many things for all of us this year. And that is the little things that we may have taken for granted, like having your your folks inside your home to eat dinner last night, where that might have been sort of an ordinary thing a couple of years ago. Now, thanks to science, it's pretty extraordinary. And well, thanks
0: to the past able- year, like that appreciation is so much so much greater. Yeah, you're right. And right. My parents got to come over for dinner, you know, a couple of years ago. And I would just like I was nice I had dinner. But if, if it felt so much better this year, you're absolutely right. And I think that's the direction well, we're headed. Happy. That's the direction I feel like we're all headed in. Speaking of which, you know, Boston um, has been kind of on the tops of our minds this week as, um, you know, you're waiting to hear um, and everybody who registered um, other than those who got in you know, through the streak and know that we're in already. But everyone else is waiting to hear. And um, we're having this similar kind of appreciation for whatever we're going to get to experience in October. And things are starting to look good. I know Massachusetts just lifted a ban on. Outdoor races are going to allow outdoor races starting, I think, May 10th. Um, so that's a good sign. And, um, uh, you know, interestingly, we're, we're hearing buzz through the running community that, um, you know, any day now we should hear uh, from for, for those who registered for Boston are waiting to hear any day now. I think it's the first week in May we're supposed to hear it, it, who got in and what the buffer was. And we are starting to hear a little bit of buzz that there were a record number of people who registered and that there may be a record number of people who are turned away. So that's making me a little bit nervous and a little bit anxious for, for all of for you, for our friends, for our runners that have, have applied. Um, um, but still hopeful because we're also hearing that because things are changing, that, um, the COVID protocols may lift a little bit and maybe a little bit easier for runners to get there and actually do the race if they get in. So, um, but, but there's that hope and, and Dave McGilvery, when he talked to us and um, when he's been on our podcast before, always talks about hope. And I think that's what what we're all feeling. Although, like I said, a little bit of anxiety too about what's gonna happen with with entries uh, when when news comes out in the next week or so.
1: Yeah, I mean, we've definitely talked about this before that there will be an unusual number of individuals who will not be accepted into Boston because of the 20,000 cutoff. And in addition to that, the buzz that there have been more applicants than ever applying for the Boston Marathon, of course, because that's just Murphy's Law. Um, but, you know, we've talked about this before. We can only control the controllables. And if anyone is one of those, everyone deserves to get in who qualified. And, and if you find yourself in the group of individuals where you weren't accepted in spite of having a qualifying time, again, that doesn't take away from your accomplishment and what, what it's disappointing. But it also, it, I mean, for me, my coping mechanism definitely, if I'm not accepted, is All right, well, I got to find another fall race. Um, I don't usually run a fall marathon, so I'm going to take it as an opportunity to try a marathon I've never tried before because I typically don't train for marathons in the summer. I have been lucky enough to be able to requalify for Boston at Boston each year. And if I'm not accepted, well, there is an opportunity for me to try a different marathon to hopefully qualify for 2022. So it's certainly not an ideal situation, but none of us can control it and just hearing that races are returning and um, of course the CDC announced this week that um, groups can gather vaccinated individuals can gather outside without masks now. You know, I feel mixed about it because I feel like the CDC could have said that a while ago. Right. But I'm I'm glad to they're bringing out.
0: Though, sounds like progress. And you know, did you see specifically? Yeah. I, I read one article specifically that they said when running and biking outside, you don't need a mask, which I thought was very, um, I mean, like you said. It, 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 we we felt um at least recently safer and as if, if you're distanced most most definitely. But um to hear that, I feel like it's a it's a it's a step forward. And I, I love I love your perspective on on the uncertainties around Boston. I think that's such an important perspective and important for people to 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 embrace that and also to look to see that Boston 2022 isn't that far away. The April twenty twenty two, we hope to be back to Somewhat, you know, close to normal if not normal, and that registration process typically starts in September, which is even it may be different this year because you know, if actual Boston's in October. Maybe it'll start a little later, but that registration is not far away. So, for anybody who doesn't get in, uh, hopefully, has another shot at registering and getting in to something that's not too far in the future.
1: Great point. And uh, you know, speaking of which, I I must believe I that registration will open up October twelfth. <laughs> For 2022, because they have to allow the Boston qualifier at the Boston Marathon count for 2022. Can you imagine the outrage if they actually no, open it? It will. It, it oh. will. it's just whether it's going to yeah.
0: open October 12th or maybe in November or you know a little bit later. Who knows? But yes, I, I my guess would be somewhere between mid October and mid November at the latest. That it will open, so that those you know those folks who didn't maybe don't get in this time will have another shot either by running a fall marathon or resubmitting their their older qualifying time if it falls in the window. So, so it's not like you have to wait a whole additional year to have another shot. You're going to have another shot pretty quickly. Um, so I, I hope at least.
1: Yeah, maybe we need to get Dave McGilvery back on the podcast to answer all of our burning questions. We might need to do that. I'm sure he'd be happy to do yeah, you know, that. He's um, always been so generous.
0: Tom Grilt, the the um, CEO or chairman of the of the BA, was actually on a, a Boston news channel. I think it was just last night or a couple of nights ago, speaking to um, speaking to the marathon and um, you know and and the hopeful the hopeful hopeful nature of of the, you know, that'll go off. So um so it was actually a good to hear from him and and hear what they're kind of contending with. And one of the questions was, well, now that COVID restrictions are lifting, could the could the capacity for Boston Marathon go back up? And his answer was, "It can't because the planning's happening now, and all of the planning and the agreements that have been reached with the cities were based on the 20,000 number. And you can't then go back to the drawing board and try to get everyone to reagree. So that's not going to happen. But, but he was hopeful that that maybe more spectators could be could be along the course if things are looking better in October. So, um, so I don't think things will change for this year because, I and mean, we've talked about this before, but these races have to plan now for the fall, and you can only plan now what we know now. So, uh, you know, I don't think the fall races will will change too much. I think we'll still see COVID safety measures in place for the fall, but I'm hopeful that, you know, the spring things will start to open up even a little bit more, hopefully.
1: Yeah, definitely. That's good information to know. So on another note, I have a funny story to share with you. So yesterday um, I drove, Noah and I drove to visit a college because Wednesdays this year, um, I like to call them MCPS Shabbat, which is basically every Wednesday there's no school in Montgomery County, regardless of whether, now now the kids are hybrid and they're back at school every other week, but regardless, there is never school on Wednesday. So we've been taking advantage of Wednesdays and and yesterday we decided to do a college visit. There aren't many tours, but we found a tour and we just wanna sort of get that process started. So anyway, we're on the drive and I don't usually listen to Jenny Hutt, but Jenny Hutt is the radio show that we were on a couple years ago. And Jenny's lovely. She um, is actually friends with our friend Joanna, it's, which is how we were introduced to her. And she does a, a show every Wednesday called Wait Wednesday. And I was just, you know, punching through and, and she was on and I was listening and Noah was half listening. And she starts talking about the importance of movement. And she invites people to call in and talk about movement and shares her own story on air about how she feels like she has to justify to her friends when she's out with them or social, why she hates to eat late because when she eats late, she feels like crap the next day and everybody judges her because she doesn't want to eat late and she doesn't want to drink. And everyone thinks that she has some sort of disordered eating because she has so many rules. And I'm thinking that's funny because if she were an athlete, nobody would judge the way she's eating or her timing. They would say, Oh, you have a run in the morning, but because she, "Quote only walks or only does recycling, you know, it doesn't count." So they said, "Call in." And I'm kind of muttering this and I'm talking to know about it because he's my audience because he's in the car and he's like, "You should call." So I did. So I called into the radio show, and so um, I I waited maybe two seconds because. No one's probably listening live. And I immediately, she says, It's Julie from Washington, D.C. I said, Hi, this is Julie from Run Farther and Faster. She said, I know who you are. I remember you girls. Um, You have a run coaching business. She gave us a shout out on the XM radio show, Just Jenny, which was super nice. And I shared with her exactly what we were talking about. And she really thought that was great and shared about. Having an athlete's mindset, even if you don't consider yourself an athlete, if you're pursuing your passion and you're exercising and doing something you love, you're an athlete. You don't have to have a signed contract to be an athlete. It's okay to structure the way you choose to run your life, whether it's when you go to sleep and when you eat, because you want to maximize and optimize your passion, as long as it's not to the point where it's disordered, which we've talked about We talked about a couple weeks ago. So we hang up. It was like a really nice conversation. And... Um, we get to our destination, my phone dings and I look and it was her other listener, my sister. Her other <laughs> listener also listens to her apparently on Wait Wednesday from Chicago. She's like, as soon as just Jenny said, and it's Julie from Washington, DC, she said, I, I knew who it was. My <laughs> <sister."> <laughs> that is so funny. So anyway, that's my funny story. But, um, you always have good funny stories, Julie. <laughs> thank you, thank you. So um, we actually need to run today because you got to take Alex to be orthodontist to uh, <laughs> yes. get a bracket fix to tell Dr. Fritz, I said hi. But before we, we wrap up today, we have an excellent guest coming up, super excited about this, uh, Michael Crawley, who is an anthropologist. He currently lives in England. He's from Scotland and he wrote a book Where he actually traveled for 15 months lived in Ethiopia and trained with elite Ethiopian runners. And he shares what that was like for him and all of the things he learned while training with these intense, but also surprisingly not intense runners and how they conducted their training and their life. Speaking of timing your food and timing your sleep and all of those things and what he learned from that experience. And interestingly, we had no idea. But just this week as well, um, Matt Chittum of the Rambling Runner, a podcast of which we're fans, um, he interviewed Matt Fitzgerald, who we've had on our podcast where he had Matt.
0: Talk about Michael Crawley's book. So right. it was because really Matt trendy. had the same experience with the runners yes. in California, right? We talked to him about his similar experience, kind of that opportunity to be a fly on the wall and and or not even a fly on the wall, be a part of the training of elite athletes, which we all kind of wonder about, I think, in our heads. So,
1: yes, absolutely. So the book is called Out of Thin Air, and um, we will be delving into it with the author next. And. Um, just before we go, we have a copy of the book, and while it's not signed by Michael Crowley, it's actually his book, Out of Thin Air. It's a fabulous book, and we'd love to give it away. So we will be giving away a copy of this book to one lucky listener who leaves us either a review on Apple Podcasts or shares our podcast on social media this week. Um, so please spread the word, share our podcast, it helps others find us, and we will be happy to give away a copy of Michael Crawley's book. In addition, we have a second giveaway and we will be providing details of that giveaway on our socials, but in a nutshell, we will be giving away a part Mother's Day or giving it to someone who's like a mother to you gift package that will include um, things from all of our sponsors, Ufo's spy belt and Lily Trotter's compression along with a gift because we are Lululemon ambassadors. We're throwing in something from Lululemon. So this giant package will be awarded also to one lucky winner. The details of which we'll be sharing on our social media channels because that criteria is a little different. So summary, please share a podcast this week. Anyone who does enters to win a copy of Michael Prawley's book. We hope you enjoy the interview with Michael and you learn as much from him as we did. Lisa, I hope that you have a great week. And hopefully by next week we'll have some answers with respect to Boston.
0: Yep, on the edge of our seat. So it was great to see you, Julie, have a great day and I will talk to you soon. Bye. Bye.
1: Michael Crowley, welcome to the Run Farther and Faster podcast. We're so excited that you're joining us today all the way from Durham, England and um, welcome. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself starting with your running background and then your writing background?
2: Yeah, sure. So um, I guess I've been running for uh, over half of my life now, Um, started running competitively when I was about 14 um, with kind of cross-country races and things like that at school and then got kind of more and more into it. Um, And I got really hooked when I met my coach who used to run for a club in the northeast called Gateshead Harriers, which is where a lot of um, top British athletes uh, used to train. And I kind of got interested in the culture that he described of running in the northeast of England in the 1980s, um, this culture of people being um, kind of all willing to run 100 miles a week and wondering a bit about, you know, why that was. So I was interested in in kind of, uh, yeah, running culture more broadly, I suppose. Uh, and then that interest took me to to wonder about what was what was so sort of special about Ethiopia. Um, I read quite a lot of books about Kenyan running, um, and I felt like, a lot of the time when people talk about, um, East African running, really they're talking about Kenyan running because it's a lot more accessible because most Kenyan runners speak English and things like that. Um, and I kind of had this sense that maybe there was something slightly different going on in Ethiopia. Um, so I decided to go and, um, and kind of investigate that. Um, but as an anthropologist, it was important to me to spend quite a lot of time running with the athletes that I met in Ethiopia. So, um, that involved, you know, being relatively fit when I, when I went out there, um, I was a, a two twenty marathon runner when I went out. So, um, ish, um, I actually ran a, a marathon in Manchester that was slightly short. So, um, I wasn't entirely sure, but I was in, I was basically relatively good by Scottish or English standards when I went out and then, uh, found out that the Ethiopian's, are uh, really quite a lot better than that, but it was, <laughs> I was good enough to be able to do at least some running with them, I guess, uh,
1: So it's very interesting, did you, so you have been running since you were a teen, but you just mentioned that you were also an anthropologist and you are a professor of anthropology, in addition, of course, to being a writer now. Um, Did you end up going into anthropology because you were a runner and you were specifically interested in running cultures or was it something you found once you became an anthropologist?
2: Um, That's a good question. Uh, I think, I kind of got This is the f- my first project as an anthropologist, I suppose, but the first sort of big piece of field work. So I spent 15 months in Ethiopia. Um, but I guess what I thought was that um, because that's how anthropologists tend to do research, by kind of living alongside people and trying to work out sort of what the world looks like from their point of view as far as possible. Uh, I kind of realized that my ability to run... It gave me a kind of usp in terms of um actually being able to have that insight into ethiopian running that most other anthropologists wouldn't have been able to have you know people other people could have maybe gone and watched watched people running from the bus and uh, and kind of talked to the coaches and things like that but um what was kind of unique about what i did was that i was able to at least do some of the running with with people um then sort of get left behind relatively rapidly but at least i was kind of there in a different way i suppose than um than other people would have been perhaps
0: and what kind of preparations did you do in, in, you know, in advance? Did you reach out to um, runners, coaches? What kind of resources did you have? And, and what what how did you lay the groundwork for your work there?
2: Um, so uh, coincidentally, there's a, um, a manager, a kind of athletic manager who lives in Edinburgh, um, where I was studying, who works with some of the top British marathon runners, but also works with a group of runners in Ethiopia uh, and a group in Kenya. So he, he was able to basically... Um, to get in touch with the coach who coaches the athletes that he works with and, and say, you know, this guy's going to be coming along and he'd like to run with you. Um, so that was really great because I got an insight into a kind of professional group um, where I had access to the bus that took us to um, to the more interesting and, and more kind of beautiful places to run, I suppose. Um, but in terms of just getting to know runners, I actually found that I didn't, I didn't necessarily need that contact to meet people. Cause when I first went out, um, what I did was I was living in a slightly different place from, from those athletes, uh, because I was taking Amharic lessons and things like that. And I would just go into the forest, um, above the house where I lived and just start jogging. Um, and basically what happened was people would always just come and kind of grab me and take me along with them. And, um, and sort of, uh, yeah, take me along in, into the group because of this idea that, um, running is a kind of very much a social thing in Ethiopia and you're not really supposed to run on your own. That's kind of, uh, frowned upon in many ways. So people would just kind of grab me and bring me along with them. Um, and that meant that I could, you know, learn a bit about the running, but also then kind of hang out with people afterwards, get to know them a little bit, talk to them about what they, what they were doing. So, um, it, it was relatively easy actually in that term, in that, um, in that sense, doing the research.
1: Did you realize that before you left, that it would sort of be that dynamic and be that easy, where sort of embedded in the culture is this idea that you should not be running alone?
2: I didn't realize how pronounced it was. I mean, I'd read that about Kenya as well, that they, you know, they talk about the the power of the group being, you know, uh, sort of instrumental to their, their success and things. But um I guess I didn't didn't realize that running on your own would be seen as such an antisocial thing to do um, because we're so used to, I mean, in, in the UK, I assume in, in the States as well, people are quite used to thinking of running as an individual sport. Um, in Ethiopia, there's this, very much this idea that success is something that is produced kind of collectively by um, sharing energy with other people and being in a big group environment. So um, yeah, that was really quite different. Um, and also the, one thing I kind of couldn't prepare for, I suppose, before I went out, I mean, I tried to make sure I was in the best shape I could be in before I went. Um, but I wasn't able to prepare for the kind of very different terrains that people tend to run on in Ethiopia. So people tend to run in very, um, hilly forests, uh, with lots of kind of tree roots and stones and, uh, very tightly packed, um, eucalyptus trees where you kind of have to weave in and out of them and run in this kind of, uh, quite unusual zigzagging kind of way that, um, But yeah, I really wasn't used to that from from being in the UK. So that that took a little bit of adapting too.
1: So what you do when you initially got there, I would assume you brought like a couple of different pairs of shoes. You brought a a wide array of footwear because I'm sure you weren't quite sure what the surfaces would be. So did you feel like you were a parent? It sounds like mentally uh, and physically you had some surprises Um, in terms of your equipment. I would imagine you also had some surprises. So talk us through like the first, let's say six weeks when you're adjusting to all this and tell us a little bit about what that felt like and what adjustments you had to make.
2: Mm. Um, The footwear thing is interesting, actually, because I think so. We, I think we tend to think of kind of marathon running as being something that's done primarily on the roads and pavements. And then trail running is something that is done in the forests and it requires a very different pair of shoes and things like that. In Ethiopia, even though they're, they're marathon runners, they're training to run on the roads. They actually do the vast majority of their training in contexts which we would describe as trail running. But there aren't any trail shoes. So I was just I had, you know, normal um, pair, uh, Nike Pegasus, probably something like that um so not not a trail shoe but just that's what everyone else had as well so um i just kind of made do with that um and i think a lot of what you know the kind of agility that they work on um and ability to run on very varied surfaces but without necessarily the, the perfect footwear for that is actually just another form of training in some way um and i suppose i think the main thing that i had to adapt to was yeah this I, this the fact that a lot of the running was on a kind of camber all the time. So you'd often, the idea in the forest with the running was that um, it was to kind of recover from some of the harder training sessions. And therefore they wanted to be getting the most variety that they could out of their running in the forest. So they would deliberately run on a slope. Um, and so I would find that my the outsides of my shins and little muscles that I just didn't normally use would be really sore at the end of that. Um, but that was a kind of a deliberate Thing that they did in order to try to prevent injury by kind of having an overly monotonous uh, form of running uh, if that makes sense
0: yeah that's interesting that you raised that so what was the um well first of all you were with a was it was a you were with a professional group is that what you were saying was to so kind of a training group and they had a i guess a training regimen that they were following did they have a coach or you know did they yeah, have so- a certain training regimen what was that set up like and then what was, I guess, where I'm getting to that question is, what is their, ba- what was their balance of those hard workouts versus those easier workouts on, and what, w- what did their training schedule look like?
2: Sure. Yeah. So basically they had, um, three very hard workouts per week. So Monday morning we would go to, uh, like a rough road, they called it. So like, a kind of gravelly, but very, very, uh, Uh, undulating road um so uh we run sort of 30k 35k sometimes 40k on these kind of these kind of roads on a monday wednesday would always be speed training so they'd run either on the on a track um or uh, more often on kind of grassy fields and just do intervals of like one minute, two minutes, three minutes, stuff like that. Um, Actually, we didn't get on the track very often because there's only, uh, um, there's two tartan tracks in Addis, but uh, it's very difficult to get access to them. So (laughs) we didn't use to run on the track that much. And then on a Friday morning, we would run on the roads um, and they referred to that as asphalt training. And it was like once a week and you weren't to run on the road any other time because it was seen as being kind of too, uh, too firm a surface, uh, too hard on the on the joints, too hard on the muscles. So it was um, quite a different approach, I think, to to most times, to what most people would would maybe think of. And then all the running apart from those three sessions was in the forest, as I described before. Um, But we would spend an awful lot of time in a bus because they there was this very strong belief in kind of getting a balance between different sort of environments around um, the city. So we would sometimes go up to the mountain uh, in Toto, which is like 3000 up to about 3300 meters above sea level. So really high. And then sometimes we would drive down to a place called Akaki, which was more like 2100 meters. So they were trying to get this balance between kind of different environments um, as the as the kind of way to improve. so often we'd get we'd basically get up at like 4.30 in the morning, three days a week, get on a bus at like 5 a.m., drive until 6 a.m. when the sun came up and then start running. So um, it's quite a quite an exhausting <laughs> sort of regimen, really, in many ways.
0: How was but, um, running on the roads? Was running on the road safe? I mean, I, I'm guessing they chose a route that was a relatively safe, a safe road, but
2: uh, no not massively safe to be honest so um yeah there's there's basically two two main options for road running one which was kind of an undulating road that was a bit higher up in a place called Sindafa and then a, a very flat road in a place called Sebata which is lower altitude where people went to try and really you know kind of run time trials and things like that um but Ethiopia has you know one of the highest rates of road traffic accidents in the world it's not the Um, not often the most comfortable place to be running along the the side of a road and there's no pavements, obviously. So um, yeah, it could be a bit hairy at times with with running on the roads.
1: So uh, as Lisa mentioned, you had a training schedule and you just explained sort of the rotation of the training schedule. Talk to us. We're just going to kind of go down a laundry list of um, how uh, Ethiopians train and their philosophy with respect to running. So the first question is pacing. Tell us a little bit about what that looked like, depending on the workout and, and what your paces specifically were, given that you came to Ethiopia as a 220 marathoner.
2: Sure. Yeah. So um, the pacing, well, pacing was very important to people in the sense that uh, they used to really kind of share the responsibility for setting the pace in the group. And the coach would talk to them about that beforehand. Um, and it was seen as like a real responsibility uh, for the person who was setting the pace to try and do that job well. Um, and that was because they, you know, people were quite concerned about making sure they um, conserved their energy and didn't get too, too exhausted from training. Um, some of the harder sessions, so they, they would do a road session on a Friday sometimes where it would be like 3K at three minutes per kilometer and then 1K at 3.30 and then back to 3K at three minutes um, and just alternate that for like 20K or 25K. Uh, I couldn't do that session at altitude. <laughs> so my version of that would be sort of... Um, Doing the hard reps at 3:30 pace, and then the easy easy bit at four minutes or something like that. Um, on the kind of rough roads, I could run about four minutes per kilometer comfortably. Was where I could manage that. Um, but they they would start at that pace and then work it down to kind of 3:20 sort of pace per kilometer. So it would be a case for me of trying to get a balance between um, kind of do, trying to do my own training to a certain extent, but also try to keep up with them for as long as possible in order to be able to write about it <laughs> so I, luckily we would always have the the bus would come with us basically on most of these runs even on the rough road where it was like um you know pretty liable to break down and things like that uh so the good thing was if i was totally knackered i could just jump in the bus <laughs> so
0: love it was quite
2: tempting but uh but yeah so they 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 were quite strict about what paces they were running to try to uh, make sure they weren't overtraining apart from on a Wednesday when they would all, what they would be allowed to do basically whatever they wanted in the speed training. Um,
1: so what did that look like for you? So you just mentioned, like, give us sort of a comparison as to how many minutes slower were your easy days in the forest or your casual easy days on other surfaces versus your hard, deliberate speed workout.
2: Yeah, actually, the forest running, a lot of the time, even I would go running with, you know, two or six marathon runners um, where it would feel slow for me to be running with them in the forest. Um, You know, they would sometimes run eight minutes per mile, nine minutes per mile, sometimes 10 minutes per mile on the really easy days, and it was kind of deliberate. Uh, They would describe it as kind of being more about trying to massage their muscles and recover between sessions. So there was a really much bigger kind of... um, Difference between the hard training and the easy training. So the hard training was really hard, and the easy training was really easy. Um,
1: yeah, I mean, when you mentioned up to ten minute miles, just for anyone listening, some of these people are running, you know, five minute miles or less. So yeah. that's, I mean, the the wider gap is clearly because when you're that fast, you have a little more wiggle room. But that's just something we want to focus on for a minute because I think all runners can can learn from this that. You may not have the breath to be able to do such a wide gap between fast and slow, but certainly it's to be noted that these elites are running five minutes slower sometimes on their easier runs.
2: Yeah. And I think that's something that um, I've read about in Kenya as well. You know, that's that's how they tend to do really easy runs. Um, And it would vary a little bit, but it would always be if they were training twice a day, the afternoon run was always just considered purely recovery it wasn't it wasn't even really considered a form of training to try and get them fitter it was just it was a way of recovering before the next morning's run uh, primarily so it's just a kind of a slightly different way of thinking about it as well as just being about the paces I think um, what,
0: what did what did their footwear look like what did I mean were, were they also into all of the newest shoes and I mean was, was there a different approach to footwear and and your different runs and different um you know, different approaches what, what what did that look like
2: Uh, very Uh, varied so you'd get like the um quite a few of the guys were sponsored by nike or adidas so they had the newest um newest shoes uh other people had to kind of uh make do with uh, with um, secondhand shoes which actually a lot of the time come from uh professional athletes selling them to shops who then sell them on to other athletes. So if you basically, what was one of the things that was quite interesting was if you're not sponsored in Ethiopia, running shoes are extremely expensive because you have to buy them, because they're hard to come by because they basically come into the country primarily through uh, athletes who have sponsorship deals. And then they, they those athletes sell them to the shops at more or less RRP. And then the shops put a premium on top. So um, if you want to buy a pair of Nike Vaporflies, in a shop in Addis, it's like five hundred dollars. So, wow. yeah, difficult. I mean, a lot of people. You have the you have shops that also um, repair running shoes. So you, you'd get kind of um, people who'd kind of repaired the uppers of a pair of shoes like six or seven times, and were just kind of making them uh, keep working. But yeah, quite quite a variety depending on who's sponsored and who's not, I suppose.
1: But when you wrote this book, I don't. It was before the Nike Vaporfly. Am I correct? There the yeah, those yeah. shoes didn't yet exist. So just curious, have you thought about if your experience were today with all of those shoes, what what that would have looked like in terms of your workouts and whether whether they would have changed? Or do you think it would really would have made a much difference? Cause they're not exactly trainers, those shoes. They're more for just racing.
2: Yeah, they I think um because I've been back a couple of times since I wrote the book. So I've um seen what it's like now with the Vaporflies. Um and they would be something that they They just wear on the Friday morning on the road run um, to the faster training session, Um, sometimes for kind of speed training on a Wednesday. But they were saying, I mean, people are quite concerned about the kind of super shoes in, in Ethiopia, because when you've got a system where one, it's just the people who are sponsored, who can get hold of them, essentially. It's then very difficult if you're slightly lower level than that to then break through because you have to kind of you have to prove yourself in a domestic race in Ethiopia, which is hyper competitive. And if you're racing against people who've got shoes that are giving them an advantage and you can't get hold of them, that's kind of different, I suppose, to like in the UK context or in the US, where most people um, or you know a lot of people are able to afford those shoes if they want them. Um, so it has been, it is a bit different. And they also talk about how it's not only. So the advantage that you get in a race or in a particular training session um, when you wear those shoes, it's also the fact that they enable you to recover faster after the training session itself. So then you can train harder and it's kind of this exponential effect um, uh, in terms of the advantage that they give. Um, But yeah, the shoes weren't really there when I was there writing this book. So that's true.
0: I was just going to say, talk to us a little bit about recovery. What what are these, what were runners doing for recovery, um, you know, because between these hard workouts and, and we can talk about mileage in, in a little bit too, but what, what does their recovery look like?
2: Um, so a, a lot of these guys, well pretty much everyone that I met who described themselves as a runner was essentially a full-time athlete. So, um, so you've got the professional runners who are obviously sponsored by Nike and Adidas and have very, you know, make really quite good money at races sometimes. But then you've also got lots of athletes who are um, sponsored by kind of government-funded organizations to run. So like the prison service or the bank or um, cement factory and things like that. So everyone, um, they say, you know, if you're a runner, you have to just be a runner and focus on that. <laughs> Which means that for from the point of view of recovery, uh, when they do get back from training, uh, it's basically just um, eat something nutritious, then sleep. <laughs> and then uh, get up and go running again get to bed early um but yeah nothing n- not so much um expensive energy drinks and recovery drinks and things like that but they they drink a lot of beso which is a uh, kind of a roasted barley uh mixture which is pretty high in carbohydrate and uh they put honey in that and drink that um but i suppose re- yeah recovery is mainly to do with uh trying to sleep between training sessions i guess
1: Did they have access to things like um, physical therapists or physios, as they're called, um, and other resources that athletes would use for recovery? And did they believe in massage or any of those modalities?
2: Yeah. So, actually, a lot, one of the things that people tend to do if they don't, um, if they realize that they're not going to succeed as a runner, is that they would train as a massage therapist, um, which meant that you had a lot of kind of, um, you know, guys who'd been on sort of six week or six month long massage therapy courses who were kind of going around people's houses, offering massage, uh, after training. Um, I had some of the most painful sports massages I've ever had in Ethiopia (laughs) with those guys. Um, but yeah, they, so they, they believe pretty strongly in massage and even people who don't pay, you know, an actual massage therapist to do it. Um, often the runners will live kind of in a compound six or seven runners in one place and they'll massage each other. Um, even if they don't have, necessarily the training but um yeah that's they do they do take that quite seriously and then there are some other there are sort of more expensive physios in addis as well for the top athletes who if they need to see them
1: so you mentioned that one of the um key recovery drinks is baso is that how you say it yeah yeah so um we've heard a lot about the typical Ethiopian runner uh fueling strategy is it what what all of us think it is, which is very heavy on carbs, or is it something where it depends on the workout and what did you learn? So it's two questions from their feeling that you took with you that you now do as a runner yourself.
2: Um, I'm not, I I mean, I actually learned, I think to be a bit more relaxed about it in many ways, because they didn't, um, I think people in the in the West often talk about this kind of twenty minute window after training where you've got to eat something. Uh, we never hit a twenty minute window ever because we were always on the bus on the way back from training, so it would be like two hours before we ate anything, um, a lot of the time. Um, from it, like when I went to Bokoji and these more rural areas to go to kind of training camps and, and meet younger athletes, they talked about how they'd um, some of them had never eaten anything that was grown sort of out out of the site of where they lived. So they grew up on farms where they, everything was like organic, locally produced, and they were quite worried about moving to the city where they weren't sure where things were coming from. Um, so yeah, I guess that kind of diet that that people have when they're growing up can't do any harm. Um, but then they they do kind of shift usually towards eating more pasta and rice and things like that once they're in and training hard, um, just like everyone else, just to get the, the kind of fuel and things. Um, I kind of, I wish I could get a hold of injera, which is the bread that they, um, the kind of pancake that is the staple. Um, there's no, I think, well, actually, I think there might be an Eritrean restaurant in Newcastle near here, but um, <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't got anywhere to buy it locally. And I think that's like, uh, it's a really just great um, fuel in the terms of, it's got um, obviously carbohydrate, but quite high in protein as well. Um, it's got lots of iron in it. It's just a great thing that um, I think, you know, if if there was one kind of Ethiopian superfood it's probably injera or teff um that they eat a lot of that
0: yeah we're lucky here in the dc area we tend to have we, we actually have 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 access to that so that's um that that's that's good to know um what about what did you notice about um kind of their mental approach to to training any you know um, either collectively as a team or individually, did you, did you notice anything different from runners that you knew from home or other, you know, other, other cultures?
2: Uh, yeah, well, I think the the most important thing there is just this idea that, um, you know, people said, um, you know, training on your own is just for your health. If you want to be changed as a runner, you've got to run with other people. And that's kind of the main message, just that, uh, if you if you're going to improve, you have to kind of be able to compare yourself to other people constantly and kind of run in that kind of um, group environment. I think the other thing is that for most Ethiopian runners, they have to uh, have to train for a long time before they get an opportunity to race abroad in a race where they can potentially make money. So they have this very kind of long term attitude to the running that that really the most important things are kind of patience, consistency, working hard over a long period of time. And it's not about kind of um, trying to transform yourself within five or six weeks. It's about kind of this, this approach, which is about, yeah, consistency, basically. Um, so I think that would be the main, the main two things to take away from that.
1: I have another question about fueling. So I'm, I mean, when we fuel during our long runs, we advise our runners to take in something when they're racing, particularly every 35 to 40 minutes. Uh, what's the race fueling philosophy among the runners you train with and how is it different than what you were already doing? And I'm not talking about before, after, but actually during race.
2: Um, so During Actually, during training sessions, one of the reasons that the bus would come along with us was because they would get something every 5k if they wanted it. So the bus would drive ahead, stop at each 5k point and get out. But it was normally just water bottles. So sometimes people would have um, some kind of carbohydrate drink in the water. Um, People would tend to test that before a race. Um, So because most most big races, there's a, a feed station, obviously, every 5k. So people would try to test that kind of thing. But... In terms of what they had access to, um, it would be whatever the manager that they were working with was able to take to Ethiopia, essentially. So sometimes it was, well, when I first started, it was usually um, uh, Science and Sport, Gels, um, then subsequently Morton, but it would depend, it kind of depends on each group, depending on which um, which of the companies the manager has a deal with, I suppose for the most part and then they they do but one of the most important things is that they always talked about was needing to practice with stuff beforehand um that was like uh i think you know there's always one or two people in the group who've had a bad experience with going away to a race and even the top runners in the world sometimes you know just try something new on race day and that's never a good idea so
0: universal (laughs) that's good to hear because that's what we advise our runners and that's universal so we've been talking a lot about like what you've learned about the runners you ran with were they curious about you did they want to know like about you and hear about your training and your approaches and you know did they ask you for you know your insights how did did that work that way or were they kind of just content being observed
2: uh they were kind of confused about why I wanted to be there necessarily I think (laughs) sometimes so they would uh, sometimes ask like you know, could you not just get a job um, in in your country where you know you the money's pretty good for working in a bank or something like that and I said well I could but you know for me this is more interesting and uh, <laughs> but they were curious because I was I was obviously running 220 and they were like well you're not going to make any money that way um, so I was yeah trying to I, I kind of had to just explain to them that I was um, wanting to kind of write a PhD thesis about it and that's why I wanted to be there um, the fact that I was not quite as good obviously as any of the runners meant that I was in a position for them to teach me stuff all the time uh so that was actually really useful from you know it's a position that anthropologists often put themselves in as kind of an apprentice be taught something and that's how you learn a lot about it so um that was kind of ideal from that perspective I don't think they felt that there was that much that they could learn from me about running to be honest. <laughs> they were the experts
1: and so the big question is when you return back to your home from Ethiopia did your running change and did you improve from your 220
2: marathon? Uh, so, well, I actually, the, the 220, I'd run about roughly 220 because I ran 219 in a race in Manchester, which where the course was short. So, I didn't actually have a marathon PB officially when I was in Ethiopia. But anyway, so I came back. Um, I actually, because i have been so used to training in a group, in a big group with the kind of camaraderie and the sort of um, just the friends I suppose I'd made in, in that a year and a bit that i was there i find it it quite difficult going back to edinburgh and just not really having anyone to train with Um, so there are a couple of people i I train with a little bit but um once you get back into a routine of work and having limited amounts of time and you kind of i don't know i slipped back into this uh thing of mainly training on my own and um struggled a bit with motivation so what i did was i asked the coach in addis to write me a training program of kind of ethiopian style training to do in scotland um and that was interesting because you know uh it was actually apart from the altitude it was actually quite easy to replicate a lot of the stuff that i was doing so we had a um there's like a coastal path that is quite close to the kind of rough road training that i used to do in ethiopia um he had me running on a kind of hilly golf course um to replicate the forest running um so that was that was pretty close to, to what i was doing and so i was doing the kind of training sessions that i used to do in ethiopia in edinburgh and that kind of reignited my um i don't know kind of kept me going with the running i suppose when i got back um and then i ran edinburgh marathon came third and then ran 220 in frankfurt so i think it did it kind of um yeah some of the stuff that i learned i still i kind of implement some of it and then i do some stuff that my coach has always had me doing when I'm here and kind of have a bit of a hybrid uh, sort of pick and mix approach to things now, I guess. But I definitely picked up some stuff that I still do.
1: So, I mean, for someone as fast as you were already, I know you you were saying it wasn't quite a 220 because the course was short and then you went and you achieved your 220 post-Ethiopia experience on an official course. That's really impressive because when you get to a certain point in your running, it's really hard to eke out another minute, which is basically... I assume what you did by running on a certified course, the same mm-hmm. 220, you eked out another minute, which is huge. Um, so since then, so you kind of you said you pick and choose from your training plan as to what you're doing now. So mm. you no longer live in Scotland, correct? Yeah. And you're you're running in a different location, and obviously the past year your running has changed tremendously, and there hasn't really been a lot of options to run in groups. Mm. How has your experience? Helped you um, navigate your running experience this year, and and what challenges have you had, and how did you overcome them? Mm.
2: Well, yeah, well, I suppose one of the, one of the things in Ethiopia that they. They talk about how important it is to have competitions uh, and that kind of just training and training and training with no competitions is actually quite um draining in many ways so they would whilst they have to wait a long time to race abroad there's a lot of domestic races within ethiopia that kind of keep people going and keep people motivated um so i guess i kind of struggled with during the COVID stuff with with motivating myself to run when there were no races on the horizon and i kind of just decided to kind of tick over um, about sort of 60% of what I would normally do. And then with the plan of kind of ramping it up once things got back to normal, um, I guess. Um, yeah. So it's kind of taking, taking that kind of long-term approach again. Um, I suppose, I think it's been, it's been hard for them in Ethiopia with COVID just because, you know, the for guys who make, make their money out of running um, it's been, yeah. It's a year with no money, basically, apart from the stipend that they get from their club and, um, so it's, it's been difficult for them.
0: You mentioned that you, knew, you made friends with the people that you ran with. Um, and have you stayed in touch with them? And what, you know, what, what, what are they up to now? And what are their hopes for, you know, coming back to races? And, and what, 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 what do they say now? What, what are, you know, what's the latest?
2: Uh, they just, um, I mean, they're kind of desperate to race again, I suppose. Um the, the people who are still running at a really high level from the book uh, uh, are that Ayana um, and Jamal uh, Yuma, I think they're both they're both running in the States this year at some point. I'm not sure exactly where, but Jamal's often at um, what's the race in uh, in D.C. Cherry Blossom. No. or
0: yeah. yeah. Cherry Blossom yes. is right near us. Actually, our, yeah. our good friend yeah. who's our physical therapist is the medical director for Cherry Blossom. And that, oh. they do usually have a good number of Ethiopian runners that are here. So,
2: yeah. So he, he won that, I think, a couple of years ago. So I, I I don't know whether he'll be, I don't know if it's happening this year, but maybe he'll be back there. Uh, it's he'll supposed be to happen his...
0: in, in the fall. It's rescheduled. There's oh. a virtual for the spring, but they they are saying that it's it's going to be rescheduled for the fall. So we'll have to see.
2: Yeah. And then I think he's also running, hopefully running Boston. I'm not entirely sure, but it's, um yeah, they, they're kind of, I think what's happening now is that there's just this huge clump of races in the autumn. <laughs> so it's going to go from being no, no opportunities at all to suddenly there's like
0: everything you know, got this, shifted. This stuff.
2: Yeah, so yeah. <laughs> um hopefully they're ready for that. Hailie who's kind of one of the very main characters and who really helped me a lot um, because his English was so good when I was there. His uh, wife kameshi is having a baby soon. Uh they decided to use the, the kind of covid window to <laughs> to have a baby when there were no races so that's great. Um So yeah, people have, uh, yeah, a few female runners have done that, which I think has been actually really nice uh, sort of side effect of of COVID because often they can't eke out the time um, during their career. So um, I suppose that's one silver lining.
1: Yeah, for sure. So in closing, there's a reason you wrote this book. I mean, as an anthropologist, but it was also your very first book. And we assume that your purpose was not only for you to learn about the running process in Ethiopia and what it takes to be an elite runner, but also to share that with others. So in writing your book, what do you hope that readers learn from your story?
2: Um well I really hope it kind of um, I, I wanted to write it in a way where it wasn't just kind of a training manual of like, well, this is what Ethiopians do, but also kind of tries to bring to life a little bit more of the sort of philosophy of running, I suppose. So I guess the main thing that I'd like people to take away from it is this idea that Uh, you know even high performance sport like Ethiopian running doesn't have to look boring it doesn't have to become doesn't have to have the kind of joy (laughs) sucked out of it so one of the main things I try to focus on in the book is this idea that it's actually a really creative process running um, and that that's the way that they experience it and that they're constantly trying to think of ways to make running um, kind of a little bit more adventurous um, you know constantly trying to innovate in in certain ways to, to do that and that's something that I think hopefully a lot of runners can can learn from just in the sense of you know it can start to become quite boring sometimes and we have to think um quite proactively about how to avoid that happening and make it as interesting as possible and i think the ethiopians are very good at that um, so yeah that would be the thing for running but i really wanted to try and write it in a way that it would be interesting as well for kind of for people who are just interested in ethiopia and ethiopian um, culture i think more broadly so if that uh, i don't know how successful i've been in, on that front but um, hopefully some people who aren't interested in running will still take something away from it
0: well that's great we are um we enjoy the book we have uh, really enjoyed um you know getting a, a little bit of a different perspective on running and also seeing the parallels you know it's, it's so so much is universal um you know we nod our heads along when we hear um, some of the some of your your recollections so not much is universal but we have uh, a lot to learn and i think the perspective is good too and just um, appreciating um, you know for us a good takeaway is you know hearing the the easy runs how easy they are and how how important those are as, those are and you know as as a recovery from from the harder running and seeing that these runners that are world-class runners do run their easy runs easy so just something like that is is an important takeaway for us so um so we really appreciate you spending the time doing this and um sharing that with 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 the readers of the book and, and with us today and with our, with our listeners. So um, we appreciate it and hope if you're, Ever in the states to do some races that you get in touch with us. I I was in Edinburgh for a um a, a duathlon, a World Duathlon Championship many years ago in Arthur's Seat, and it was such really? a I, I loved Edinburgh. It was, it was beautiful. So I know you're not there anymore, but um, but if you're ever in the states and and around um you know come come do cherry blossom. We're we're right we're right nearby, and we're usually at the race. So if you're ever here, make sure you let us know, and uh, we'd love to run with you. And we may not be able to keep up with you. but that was, <laughs> I was, not an uh, easy run
2: to um dc because there was a there's a huge kind of well you know this obviously but there's lots of ethiopian uh, diaspora runners in dc and i was kind of um i had a project planned of doing some research amongst uh sort of members of the ethiopian diaspora who still run competitively uh but it got Um, it got canceled because of COVID, um, last year, unfortunately, but if that ever is resurrected, I will get in touch. Yeah,
0: absolutely. We would love to, we'd love to see you and, and get to run with you in DC. So, so thank you so much for your time and thanks for sharing your experiences with us. And, um, we hope that you can get back to running and ramp up your training and, and get back to racing too soon with, with the rest of the world.
2: Thank you very much for having me. Thank you.
0: Thank you
1: so much, Michael. Take care. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Run Farther and Faster Boston Marathon podcast. We want to give a special thanks to our editor, Erin Bryan. And if you enjoyed this episode and enjoy listening to our podcast, please share it with others and please leave a review if you haven't done so already on iTunes. Thanks for listening and have a great week.